All right. Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13? We are working our way through Matthew's Gospel. We come to the end of chapter 13 today. And uh, let me just read the first, uh, well, verses 53 through the first part of 57 right now. Where it says, And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there, and when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Josie, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. Well, after presenting seven parables that revealed various aspects of the kingdom of God to his disciples, Jesus then leaves Galilee, travels 20 miles to the west, and uh, comes to his hometown of Nazareth, the place where he had grown up as a boy. And it says he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And goes on to say, And they were offended at him. This was the second and final time Jesus tried to minister in his hometown of Nazareth and was met with unbelief and even hostility. You remember how that, in Luke's Gospel chapter 4, in fact, why don't you turn to it, Jesus began his Galilean ministry by going to the synagogue in Nazareth. And you remember as we studied this earlier in this series, this is now him, him beginning his Galilean ministry, which he spent most of his time ministering up in the Galilee. But he goes there to Nazareth, verse 16, Luke 4. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Well, you know why? He just read a messianic passage declaring himself to be the fulfillment. All right? Verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you, truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might 
throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, that's not the ending of a sermon you want. Although, some might say, no, that's exactly what you want. I mean, it shows that there was conviction there. All right, But uh, this was the Lord's first attempt to minister in Nazareth, and it didn't end very well. Now, in Matthew 13, we have recorded his second and final attempt, which ended with the same kind of skepticism, cynicism, and unbelief among the townspeople that his first attempt to minister there had ended with. Why was that? Well, he tells us in verse 57 of Matthew 13, it says they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. You know, there's a a line from an old Keith Green song. Keith has been with the Lord now for about 25 years, but there's an old line from a Keith Green song that he wrote about this very event. And the line goes, Prophets don't grow up from little boys. See, he grew up there. Can't be a prophet. He grew up here. Well, where do prophets grow up? All right, they got to grow up somewhere. But see, for the townspeople, the old familiarity breeds contempt. And in this case, their contempt led to unbelief. Again, let's read verses 55 to 58. Is this not the carpenter's son, they asked? Well, no, it wasn't. It was God's son, but they didn't know that. Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, how that after Mary bore Jesus, uh, then her and Joseph went on to have a normal family. And so he had uh, four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and and in his own house. Verse 58, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Mark records the same incident, but Mark gives us a little more. In fact, he adds a very important detail. In Mark 6, verses 5 and 6, we read, Now he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Listen, it was not simply that Jesus would do no mighty works in Nazareth. Mark tells us that he could do no mighty works there. Is it possible? Is it possible for us to hinder or to limit the work God wants to do in us and through us by our unbelief? Now, many would say no, because they have a hyper view of God's sovereignty, which reduces man to a puppet, really, and God is the puppet master, and we really don't have any say in anything. It gets so bad, one of the leaders in the Reformed movement, these are the folks that cling to this idea, he put it this way, he says, even when, and this was going back a few years, when you hit the wrong key in a typewriter, God did that. You know, I believe in God's sovereignty. I believe, though, that we have a free will, and I believe our God is big enough to allow us to make our decisions and yet weave them into his ultimate plan so that everything works out exactly the way he wants it to work out. But can we hinder the work God wants to do in and through our lives, through our unbelief? I say yes. The scriptures indicate that. You don't have to turn to these. You can write the references down. Let me just read them to you. Psalm 78, verse 41, talking about Israel. Yes, again and again they tempted God, listen, and limited the Holy One of Israel. Ezekiel 22, 
verses 30 and 31. God said, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. God says, look, I didn't want to bring judgment. I was looking for somebody in Israel who would intercede, anyone, who would stand between me and the land that I would not have to bring judgment. But he said, I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. How about Matthew 23, verse 37? As Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem, and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I wanted to do this, but you didn't let me because you were not willing. And finally, remember when Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin and he recounted their history, how they, they rejected prophet after prophet that God had sent to them. And then he nails them, okay? He just hits them. Verse 51 of Acts 7. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Listen, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Look, we can resist the Spirit's work in our life. We can hinder what God wants to do in and through us. Now, that doesn't diminish God. That doesn't uh, somehow uh, throw a monkey wrench into His ultimate plans. No. God is God. He will move or work around us. But I don't know about you. If God wants to use me, I want to be used. And I don't want to do anything that would cause God to say, I wanted to do this in your life, but you wouldn't let me, so I'll go to somebody else. Let me read to you what author William MacDonald says. He kind of brings some balance to what we're talking about, so you don't get the wrong idea. He says, and I quote, It was not because he, Jesus, could not do the works. Man's wickedness cannot restrain God's power. But he would have been blessing people where there was no desire for blessing, filling needs where there was no consciousness of need, and healing people who would have been resenting being told they were sick, end quote. I also like what author Warren Worsby said along these lines. He put it this way, and I quote, Some of Jesus' miracles were done in direct response to personal faith, but many others, perhaps most of them, were done regardless of any specific expression of an individual's faith. All of the miracles were done to strengthen the faith of those who believed in him, but although God can perform miracles where there is no belief, he chose not to perform them where there was hard and willful unbelief. That's very important. Unbelief, then, became a barrier to divine blessing. And because of the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, Jesus did not do many miracles there. Mark reports that he could not, he could do no miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It was not that Jesus lacked supernatural power while he was in Nazareth, but that he chose to operate only in response to faith, which is the result that the people's unbelief presented him from fully exercising that power. Just as believing saves the soul and enables the power of God to work in its fullness, so unbelief blocked the release of his power and dammed up the flood of his blessings, end quote. You know, when we're talking about how faith allows the power of God to flow into our lives and unbelief hinders the power of God from flowing, it really reminds me of a story that we looked at earlier in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9, which again, you have to turn there. 
But in Matthew 9, we come across a woman who had a condition where she had been hemorrhaging for, for 12 years. And she had gone to doctor after doctor, and uh, the Gospels tell us that she would used up all her money and nobody could heal her. So one day she hears about Jesus, and she, she hears how that he is healing people that nobody else can heal. So she waits for him to come to town, and as a big crowd is walking with him, she quietly slips into the crowd, reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment. Because she said to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. And instantly she was made well. And um, Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? Now the disciples got a kick out of that. Okay. They said, what do you mean who touched you? Who hasn't touched you? Lord, the crowd is thronging you on every side. You say, who touched me? He said, no, this touch was different. I felt healing power go out of me. Very important point, And I think something we need to understand. Her touch was different from the crowd. A lot of people touching Jesus as he was walking down that street. One woman touched him in a unique way and received power and healing from him. Look, the crowd's touch was incidental. Her touch was deliberate. You know, we're living in a, many would say, a post-Christian era, but we still have a lot of heritage of our Christian founding, okay? And because there's a lot of Christianity still in our nation, there's a lot of people that can't help but come into contact with Jesus especially at various points in the year. We just passed Christmas. Uh, atheists go crazy at Christmas time. You know, that's why they're always putting signs up and trying to discredit Christmas. Because they're, they're furious that they have to come in contact with Jesus uh, in society at Christmas time. We're all talking about Jesus. We're singing about Jesus. There is, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season signs everywhere. And, and, and it just drives them up a wall because they have to come in contact with Jesus at Christmas time. The same is true with Good Friday, we'll say, and Easter Sunday. I mean, these are holidays that are designed around Jesus Christ. And a lot of people come in contact with Him at these various times, but it's incidental contact. Or maybe they live next to a Christian. Or they work with a Christian who is always laying a track on their desk or, or something, or talking about the Lord. Maybe they've got the Christian radio turned on uh, at their cubicle, and they can hear it where they work. They're, they're, they're coming in contact with Jesus, and they don't really appreciate that. It's incidental contact on their part, occurring merely by chance without any intention. And as such, they never really receive any life from Jesus or power or healing. And this is even true of Christians who come to church and come in contact with Jesus here at church or in the pages of Scripture. But they never really receive any of His power in their lives. The reason is because... To receive anything from Jesus, there must be a conscious, deliberate touch of faith like this woman exhibited. But listen to me. A deliberate touch of faith that is rooted in expectation. That's very important. A deliberate touch of faith that is rooted in expectation. She said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made well. And the idea was she expected a miracle. Now, I like what A.W. Tozer, great man of God. A.W. Tozer said, and I quote, True faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by expectation. The man who believes the promises of God expects to see them fulfilled. Where there is no expectation, there is no faith. Expectation has always been present in the church in times of her greatest power. When she believed, she expected, and her Lord never disappointed her. 
And then Tozer quotes out of Luke chapter 1, verse 45, where Elizabeth, after Mary comes to visit her, and Elizabeth makes the observation, she says, um, And blessed is she, talking about Mary, that believed, for there shall be the fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Mary believed in the promise of God. She expected to see it fulfilled. And Elizabeth said, because of that, the fulfillment will happen. The promise will be fulfilled. Tozer goes on to say, Every great movement of God in history, every unusual advance in the church, every revival has been preceded by a sense of keen anticipation. Expectation accompanied the operations of the Spirit always. His bestowals hardly surprised his people because they were gazing expectantly toward the risen Lord and looking confidently for his word to be fulfilled. His blessings accorded with their expectations. One characteristic that marks the average church today is lack of anticipation. Christians, when they meet, do not expect anything unusual to happen. Consequently, only the usual happens, and that usual is as predictable as the setting of the sun. A psychology of non-expectation pervades the assembly. We need today a fresh spirit of anticipation that springs out of the promises of God. We must declare war on the mood of non-expectation and come together with childlike faith. Only then can we know again the beauty and wonder of the Lord's presence among us, end quote. You know, part of the problem of nothing new happening in our lives and in our church is because very few Christians are taking any steps in faith anymore. They come and they just expect the usual to happen. They don't really take any steps of faith in their lives to see God doing new things in their lives. I guess the attitude is, well, here I am, God. If you want to do something new, I'm here, you know. But they never go in, you know, and then they wonder why things don't ever happen. Nothing changes. It's business as usual. As somebody has said, many Christians are waiting on God, but God is waiting on them to take a step in faith. I think of Peter in that boat on the Sea of Galilee with his, the other 11 disciples. Remember how they were in that storm, right? Looked like they were going under, and when it, all things looked black, here comes Jesus walking to them on the water because he had been up on the mountain praying for them. And here he comes walking out in the water, all right? And they thought he was a ghost at first. And he says, it's me, all right? And Peter said from the boat, well, Lord, if it's you, let me, you know, come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, well, come on out. But Peter had to take a step out of the boat, right? I mean, he wanted God to use him and show him a new thing. But Peter had to take the step. And the idea is that, you know, we want God to use us. We want God to do a new thing in our lives. It's a new year. And every new year brings with it some new hopes that maybe this year is going to be different. God's going to give me victory over certain bad habits or he's going to use me in, in newer ways. But then we never take a step out of the boat. We never, you know, pray and then just step out. Well, you say, what if I step in a wrong direction? Hey, look, Paul the Apostle was working his way across Asia Minor. And at one point, he wanted to go north. The Spirit stopped him. He said, okay, I'll go south. The Spirit stopped him. Well, he'd already been east, and one night the Spirit appeared to him in a dream and said, Go west, into Europe. And so Paul went ahead. But he was bouncing off of closed doors because Paul, his idea was, Look, 
Uh, I'm going to go where my heart leads me as long as my heart is leading me to do whatever I can for the Lord. I'm going to take a step. And if it's a wrong step, the Spirit will redirect me. It's not a mistake that hurts the kingdom of God. It's rebellion. And Paul says, look, I want to be, I want to be moving. I want, to, you know, I want the Lord to, to be able to lead me because I'm going somewhere. Even if it's the wrong direction, I'd rather bounce off a closed door and be redirected than to sit on the couch and wait for God to pick me up and move me out, which is not going to happen usually. So don't be afraid to take a step in faith. The only hindrance in us being used by God is our unbelief, as we see here in Matthew 13, verse 58. Unbelief is the antithesis of faith, and without faith it's impossible to please God. Now, there are basically two kinds of faith a person can exercise. This is not groundbreaking stuff, you know this. Saving faith and practical faith. To come to Jesus requires one kind of faith, and then to walk with Jesus requires another. Saving faith is the faith of a moment which affects my eternity. Practical faith is moment by moment, which affects my daily life. Now listen, in some ways it's a lot easier to exercise faith for a moment and get saved than it is to exercise moment by moment faith every day, right? But the idea is that the life of faith doesn't stop the moment you give your heart to Christ. That's when it begins. The just shall what? Live by faith. Yes, get saved by faith, that's obvious. But that's only the starting point. The just shall live by faith. Yes, but I have a hard time sometimes believing and I get scared. Well, we all do. Why doesn't God work in my life? Because Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be done unto you. We have to understand this. He said, well, what is faith? I'm hearing a lot of things today. You know, faith is a force. I understand the principles by which this force called faith works. I can direct it at God and write my own ticket with God. You know, what is faith? Well, the best definition of faith is the one in the Bible itself in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where the author says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word substance means title deed or ownership in the Greek. Listen, faith is believing that you already own what God has promised you in his word. Now, that's an important point. Underline promised you in his word. Faith does not mean I can write my own ticket with God. Whatever I want in the way of Cadillacs or houses or bank accounts, all I have to do is pray in faith and those are mine. No. The Bible never says God will give you all your desires. He says he will give to you everything he's promised to give to you and I. And faith is believing that you already own what God has promised you in his word. Listen, even if you can't yet see it with your eyes or touch it with your hands. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, Spiritual faith does not come about by saying, Show me a sign, God. Answer my prayer. Perform a miracle. It begins by believing simply that God is. That's true and that he is above his creation. God said in Isaiah 64, verse 4, Behold, I make all things new. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, he said, Which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man. The author says, Ask God, therefore, to give you a new eye, a new ear, a new heart, 
for whatever your human sense insists that you believe must be brought under the Spirit. Otherwise, you will always be under the, the dominion and control of the flesh and of the world. You will always interpret the events of your life by what your senses tell you and not by the light of faith. The disciple of the Lord must train himself to see, hear, speak, and act spiritually. Therefore, we do not insist that God answer prayers or bless us in order to prove he is Lord, that is, fleshly-minded darkness and a counterfeit form of our faith. Learn how to walk in the true faith, which rests in God. Not demanding earthly answers and blessings, do not slip down into a false earthly faith which must rest upon answers, signs, and miracles in order to stand at all, end quote. And that's exactly how a lot of people, have, what they've done with faith. Faith is a way by which God has to constantly prove who he is to us. And how does he do that? By giving us all we want. Every time we pray, okay, God better come through, because if he doesn't answer this prayer, he's not God. Oh, really? So everything now depends on God's performance. You know, he can, he'll be in our good standing as long as he keeps performing the way we desire, answering all the prayers, giving us what we want, and so on. Instead of just trusting him for who he is, regardless of what he does or does not do in my life, Job said, though he slay me, yet I will still trust him. That's the kind of faith that says, God, you are who you are. You don't owe me anything. You don't have to perform uh, at my beck and call. Whether you answer this prayer or not, you're still God, you're still on the throne, and I just need to adjust my life and thinking to your sovereign will. We don't do that today. As we said, true faith believes without seeing, and it must always be coupled, listen, with expectation and obedience if it's going to please God. You don't have to turn there, but you can read it later. Hebrews 11, verse 7 talks about Noah, right? It says how that Noah was warned, divinely warned by God that a flood was coming. And it says that he believed God and moved with godly fear and built an ark. We have to understand something. When God told Noah, Noah, you need to build an ark, you and your sons, because I'm bringing rain, I'm going to bring a flood. Do you realize that nobody had ever seen rain on the earth up until this time? Every night, the Bible says, a mist came out of the ground and watered everything. There was no rain. Certainly they had never seen a flood. So everything God told Noah was based on what Noah had never seen before, had no frame of reference with regard to, yet he believed God. You know, there's a lot of people that say, and Peter talked about these folks, right, who mock us Christians because we say God's judgment is coming, the world is ending, and his, new king, his kingdom is going to be established. And they mock that. Because they say, Peter says, that all things continue as they have from the beginning of time. See? You talk about judgment. I mean, you know, there's never been a judgment like that. Well, Peter says they're willfully ignorant of the flood. God once destroyed the earth with a flood. He's going to destroy the earth again, this time with fire. But the idea is that this world is coming to an end as we know it. Now, it will always exist in some form. God's going to create a new heavens, a new earth, a new city called New Jerusalem, which we're all going to live in as the people of God. But, you know, we've never seen what's coming. We've never seen the rapture. Yet we trust that because God told us it's going to happen, it's going to happen. There's a lot of things that we believe by faith. We've never seen them. You know, if seeing is believing, we're all in trouble. Isn't that what uh, Thomas said, show me? 
You know, if, if I can't see the nail prints in his hand and the spear wound in his side and so on, I won't believe. Next week, Jesus appears in the upper room. There's Thomas sitting there. Thomas, come here, son. All right, put your fingers and nail prints in my hands. Put your hand in the spear wound in my side. And don't be unbelieving, but be believing. Thomas said, my Lord, my God. Jesus said, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe without having seen. That's faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. How can we increase our faith? The faith is very important. It allows the power of God to flow into our lives. How do we increase our faith? Turn to Luke 17 quickly. That's a big thing today. How can I increase my faith? Okay. I want to be a great man of faith. I want people to say, oh, what great faith he has. Well, hold on to that thought, okay? In Luke 17, verses 5 and 6, And the apostles of the Lord said to him, Increase our faith. Oh, this is nothing new. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. How can we increase our how can we increase our faith? Okay. Well, first of all, it starts with first of all realization. Realization, what does that mean? It means that it's not the size of our faith that's important. Listen, it is the object of our faith that really matters. Turn to Mark eleven. We need great faith. No, we need to know a great God. It's not the size of our faith that's important. It's the object of our faith that really matters. We see this in Mark 11, verses 22 to 24. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in what? God. And I say that because years ago, Kenneth Hagin, the father of the positive confession movement, wrote a book called Have Faith in Your Faith, where he basically turned faith into a force. And he said it's a force like gravity, and gravity works according to certain laws, so does faith. If you understand the laws uh, that faith works uh, under, then you could, uh, you could harness the power of faith and direct it at God and basically write your own ticket with God. So I can zap God with my ray gun of faith, as long as I understand how it works, turn it on God, zap God with it, and he becomes my servant. Do people think through these things before they teach these, this stuff? First of all, if, even if I could do that, even if it was possible, I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to write my own ticket with God. God's ways are best. His ways are beyond finding out. He's, he's all-knowing. His ways are best in my life. Why would I want to make God my servant when I have access to the one who has all knowledge, all power, whose ways in my life are absolutely perfect? Why would I want to turn God into my servant instead of just saying, Lord, here I am. You direct me, because your ways are best. So Jesus answers to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says of this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Well, that does sound like we can write our own ticket with God, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that what Jesus is telling us? No. Context is everything. When you're studying a topic, you've got to take all of what God says on that topic to formulate your doctrine from. Yes, faith is important. We're not denying the reality of that. 
Have faith in God implies that when I have faith in God, I want God's will. That's what, that's what Jesus meant when he said, if you pray in my name to the Father, he will give you whatever you request. People say, okay, well then I'll pray for this, this, and that, and my Mercedes, and my mansion, and so on, and I'll just take Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Like a stamp on a letter fired up to heaven, and hey, I'm good now. God's got to come through for me. In Jesus' name simply means according to everything Jesus would have asked if he had been here in person. That's all it means. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going away soon. Where I'm going, you can't follow me. Not yet. I'll come back for you. Until I do, you have work to do. The work I've begun, I'm giving over to you to continue. And whatever you need for the work of the kingdom, you ask the Father in my name and he'll get it to you. That was all about God's glory. It was all about doing God's work. It wasn't about building my selfish kingdom on the earth. It was about getting out of the way and letting God be God in my life. And when I do that, yeah, whatever I need, because I'm thinking like a true disciple, not my will, but your will be done. When that happens, I can ask God with complete confidence, because the things I'm asking, I know are the things Jesus would have asked for if he had been here. But this idea that I can ask God for whatever I want and he has to come through simply because I tack Jesus' name at the end. Look, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to what? His will. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we will have the petitions we have asked of him. It's all got to go through the grid of God's sovereign will. And I'm th- personally, I'm thankful for that. Can you imagine if we could... If through prayer, I could get whatever I want, and people could, you know, God, get that guy. I don't like him. You know, he wasn't real nice to me last Sunday. Lord, get him now. We'd be sicking the Lord on each other, and just would be a horrible. You know, I mean, terrible things would happen. Look, it's got to be according to God's will. All right, James says, look, you ask and don't you you have not because you ask not. And even when you do ask, you don't get it from God. Why? Because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your lusts, selfish desires. So first of all, the realization that faith is not a force. There is no power in faith, guys. Faith is a conduit that connects God to my life and allows the power of God to flow from Him in and through my life. It's like a, a power cord. A power cord has no power in and of itself. It has to be plugged into an outlet, and then if, when it is, it allows power to flow from the outlet to whatever is on the other end of the cord for the purpose of running that thing, right? God is the power source. Faith is the cord that connects me to God. Faith has no power in and of itself. But when it's connected to God, my heart is right, and my prayer requests are for His glory, guess what? The power of God flows from God into my life for His sovereign purposes. Not for my own selfish desires. So first of all, realization. That's how you start building your faith. You realize it's all about God, not about you and I. Secondly, how about revelation? And by that I mean God's Word. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by what? The Word of God. You want to build your faith? Stay in the Word. Because this is how you come to know the promises of God. How do you know what God has promised you so that you can trust by faith He's going to give it to you if you don't know what He's promised? I mean, it's so fundamental, but so many Christians are not really in the Word faithfully, and therefore they're lacking in that practical faith that they need when they, you know, live their lives each day. So, realization. Secondly, revelation. Stay in the Word of God. 
Thirdly, tribulation. Okay? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now let's read verses 3 and 4. He said, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly wonderful. Their faith was growing. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your, listen, persecutions and tribulations that you endure. And Paul is connecting the growing of their faith with the persecutions and trials and tribulations they were going through. Well, look, when, when uh, God's people go through times like that, they have to cling to God. They have to cling to God. And as such, their faith grows. Spending time with the Lord is going to cause your faith in Him to grow. Faith is basically trusting God. Many Christians don't really trust God with their lives. I'm not saying they're not saved, but they don't trust Him in practical matters because they don't really know Him that well. How are you going to trust somebody with something as important as your life if you don't really know Him very well? Spending time with Him increases that knowledge, which increases your faith. Tribulation drives us to God. Okay? You're, you know... You're going through a period where you're not feeling that close to God, right? But you're not praying. You're not really hanging out with the Lord, if I can put it that way. So what does he do? He turns up the heat, all right? There's some tribulation that happens. What does that force you to do? Force you to run upstairs, hit the ground on your knees, slide to your bed, and pray, God, what's going on? God says, hey, how you doing? It's good to hear from you. You know, we haven't talked in a while. I just wanted to see how you're doing. Oh, but Lord... This is hard. Yeah, I know it's hard. But how am I going to increase your faith? You won't trust me for anything. i got to force the issue a little bit. Well, Lord, it's kind of cruel. No, it's loving. Because the more you trust me, the closer you get to me, the better it is for you. I love you too much to let you do your own thing and just go off on your own. You know, I'm going to, whatever it takes, I'm going to bring you close to me. So, you know, the realization. It's not faith that's really important. It's God. Revelation, stay in the Word. Tribulation, understand that God will use things not to hurt you, but to grow you and die. And then finally, very simply, continuation. What does that mean? Just continuing to walk by faith every day. The just shall live by faith. Look, practical faith is like, as many have said, a muscle. The more you exercise it, the more it will grow and get stronger. The problem is today... As Henry Blackaby put it, evangelicals today, he said, are conservative in their theology, but are practical atheists. (laughs) Think about that for a moment. He's saying most evangelicals, although conservative in their theology, in other words, we believe God is who he is. We believe he's on the throne. We believe he's sovereign. We believe he can do all things. Yet when it comes to the practical matters of our life, do we really apply that? No. Often we worry, get stressed out. Run around, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I can't pay the mortgage this month. What's, I, my job is looks like it's going to fold. What am I going to do if it, if it folds? I don't know. What, we get stressed out and anxious, and we're not really applying what we believe into our daily lives. It's no wonder Christians have nervous breakdowns and have holes eaten in their stomachs through stress and worry. Look, as we bring this to a close, not even the strongest faith will guarantee that God will work a healing or a miracle on our behalf at any given moment. But look, there's something about staying desperate before God. There is something about 
trusting in him with all your heart, where you're desperate, you're broken. I mean, believing and praying and desperation and brokenness is the best place to be in if you want God to work. Remember what God says through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with what? All your heart. Implying sometimes it takes a while for us to get to a point of desperation where we're now praying with all of our hearts. Hebrews 11:6. But without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to him must believe that he is, that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, there's something about being desperate before God where you're really crying out in desperation and in helplessness. God, help me. Lord, work in this situation. Now, look, one last thing and we'll close. We're all imperfect people, right? And because of it, our faith is often flawed and imperfect. And we know it. We know it. So we listen to the devil who says, look, your faith is so weak. God's not going to listen to you. Why even bother praying? And we don't pray. Because we don't believe God's going to work because our faith isn't strong enough. Look, God is sovereign. And he will work in our lives regardless. If, look, if our heart is right, and the thing that we're asking for is not for selfish reasons, but we want to see somebody else healed or saved or blessed or something for God's glory, even though our faith is often weak and flawed, God will still honor it because he's gracious. Have you turned to one last scripture? Mark 9. You remember the story of the father who had a demon-possessed son. And nobody could help this kid. Nobody. And finally he hears about Jesus, this mighty prophet who is casting demons out of all kinds of people. And he locates where Jesus is ministering, goes and doesn't find Jesus because Jesus is up at this time on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and John. And, uh, and I believe Andrew was up there with him. But down at the base of the mountain, you had the other nine disciples. And so this guy brings his son to these disciples of Jesus and they couldn't cast the demon out of this young guy. Finally, Jesus shows up. And in verse 21, we read, so Jesus asked his, the father there, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him, the demon has thrown him both into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do something. Doesn't sound like a lot of faith there, does it? Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out with tears and said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I appreciate that. Here was an honest man. You know, so many Christians try to, I don't know, they, they, they try to butter God up, act in so spiritual, as if God doesn't know them, okay? <laughs> Trying to act like such great men and women of faith. Here's an honest guy. He says, Lord, I do believe, but my faith is weak. Help my unbelief. Now, did Jesus say, oh, sorry, you know, uh, your faith is not strong enough. I can't work. No, the Lord went ahead and delivered this boy from these demons. Because our God is gracious. And he knows our frames are but dust. The Bible says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And you know what? 
there are things that we pray for. And honestly, they're not bad things. They're not selfish things or carnal things. They're legitimate things. Some of you folks are out of work. It's rough. You know, you've got mortgage payments. You've got car payments. You've got food to buy. You're asking God to provide your needs. That is not a wrong thing. That's an absolutely right thing to do. And know this, he's promised to take care of your needs so you can ask with all faith. But sometimes we get worried, don't we? And our worry strangles our faith. Now, does that mean God is not going to work? No. He will often bless us and provide for us because he's faithful to what he has said. And as he does, it builds our strength for the next time. So, yes, faith is important, but guys, it's more important to know your God. Draw close to God this year. We all want to see God use us this year in greater ways for his glory. Draw close to him. Stay in his word. Learn to trust your God. You're not going to trust somebody with your life if you don't know him very well. That's why it's so important to get into God's presence. Get to know him. All right? Find out what he has promised you in his word. And then cling to those promises. Because what God has promised... He is able to perform. I don't care how hard it is. Oh, but how is God going to do it? That's not, our, that's not for us to figure out. That he will do it because he's promised it. That's all we need to know. So may God help us. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you're a, a God who keeps his promises. You do it, Lord, for your name's sake. And we just thank you, Lord. Yes, Father, we are flawed. We are weak. And our faith is often flawed and weak as well. But, Lord, we love you. And we ask you, Lord, to give us grace to draw close to you this year. Give us a renewed hunger for your word. That as we read it, Lord, we don't read it to just know the word of God. We read it to know the God of the word. That, Lord, our relationship with you might deepen. And because of it, our faith might be strengthened. That you would do in and through us this year things that we never thought possible. That you would show yourself strong through us this year for your glory. So, Lord, we thank you. We don't want it to be said of us that you could do nothing in the way of mighty works because of our unbelief. We want to be like the woman who dared say, if I can just reach out and touch him through faith, if I can just deliberately come in contact with him and trust him and and believe he's going to work, I'll be healed. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.